3: but if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish protocol or the Northern Irish protocol
0: fully implemented. I'm gonna miss being the
3: pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor,
0: Normally in Brussels, but currently in Copenhagen. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London.
2: And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Dublin, London and Brussels. So we're kind of doing it on the hoof this week, Tony. You are in an airport in Copenhagen. We're under so much pressure, we're not getting our usual tightly scripted intro together this week. But just give us a flavour of what's coming up later in the podcast, an interesting interview that you you did last night.
3: Yeah, a lot a lot happening this week, Colm and Sean on on the Northern Ireland Protocol on Brexit in general. So on the protocol there's been a lot of tension raising over article 16, the the prospect of the UK triggering that. There's been a lot of froth over fish. Um, and I've been speaking to Alexandra Hall Hall who was Brexit counselor in the British Embassy in Washington. Then she resigned. So we'll be hearing lots about that later.
2: Okay, Sean, in true alliterative terms, what sums up what we're looking at this week?
0: Fish, frost and finimore. uh, Three little things that take us from the Jersey Shore to the goings-on of the Protocol.
2: Okay, well let's start with uh, frost then, to take the first of those F-sounding words. What's the latest development today on your end of things, Sean?
0: Well, on the Frost front, it's all rather fishy, I'm afraid. We've had a a statement out from Lord Frost on Friday afternoon as we're recording this, uh, following on the talks, the lunchtime talks that he had with Mara Ševčević. Again, these seem to be a weekly occurrence. There's another round set for next week in Brussels dealing with the protocol issues. And on that front, doesn't seem to be that much change compared to uh, last week. uh, Big gaps between the two sides. Uh, constructive talks, constructive spirit they are saying here, uh, or at least Lord Frost is saying here, uh, but they don't engage with what they are looking for on uh, things like uh, subsidy policy, VAT, and of course governance and uh, especially the role of the Court of Justice. But the more interesting stuff uh, comes in the second half of that statement, uh, where they talk about what Lord Frost told Vice President Shevchevich about what he calls our concerns about the unjustified measures announced by France earlier this week to disrupt UK fisheries and wider trade to threaten energy supplies and to block further cooperation between the UK and EU, for example, on the Horizon Research Programme. uh, Lord Frost making it clear to Mr. Shevchevich that these actions, if they're implemented, uh, would put, and I quote, the European Union in breach of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, uh, the good old TCA. Uh, the government, British government is accordingly considering the possibility of launching dispute settlement proceedings under the TCA and of other practical responses including implementing rigorous enforcement processes and checks on EU fishing activity in UK territorial waters within the terms of the TCA. So the fish war uh, seemingly hotting up this afternoon um, as uh, the political week normally comes to an end, but of course, this uh, political week, uh, things are only getting going, both at the G20 summit down in Rome, uh, but also now by the looks of things with this fisheries dispute, um, the, the British Prime Minister expected to meet with the uh, French President uh, during that uh, G20 meeting. You never know. They might be able to get something done on, on uh, this uh, fish dispute, but it's supposed to be sorted out by... Uh, Monday. That seems to be the deadline. Um, with uh, sanctions um, threatened to come into effect on Tuesday, and counter-sanctions, by the looks of things, now coming in very rapidly behind that. So, as things stand now, not looking too good on the fish front. Right.
2: How did they get to the point, Tony, where they've been consistently pissing each other off over the past week or so?
3: Well, we, we've talked about this fisheries issue before, and it, it really relates to Jersey, you know, one of the Channel Islands, and uh, you know, there's been a bit of. Uh, froth as well about the 6 to 12 mile limit off the UK coast where quite a few French vessels have fished historically. Uh, But but this issue really relates to Jersey. Now, you know, previously all these issues were caught up in, in either the common fisheries policy or the Bay of Granville treaty between Britain and France over access to Jersey fishing waters, very rich waters by the way, but all of that was rolled into the new trade and cooperation agreement uh, and essentially, French boats which fished in those waters previously had to kind of reapply for licences. And what the UK is saying is that unless you uh, can provide data that proves you fished there historically in the past, uh, then you're not getting a licence. Now, they've already granted 66 licences to French boats. Those are mostly from Normandy. Um, th- there are a further forty-five uh, other boats where were given provisional licences. Essentially, they're in a waiting room until the end of January. But then, fifty-five boats didn't get any licences at all, ne- neither full or provisional. Um, now, it looks like thirteen of those fifty-five could be okay; they could move into the waiting zone. But that leaves about forty-two boats. Which have been essentially refused licences, and the UK saying they're not providing the data that is required of them according to the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. The French government saying absolutely untrue. These are small boats that that can't necessarily provide the data you're looking for, and and really it's it's a it's a massive escalation, essentially over the fate of about 42 uh, fishing boats, and we're talking small fishing boats as well. Um, now, the European Commission has been trying to mediate here, uh, talking to both sides. Um, there was a, a meeting of the specialised committee for fisheries that's set up under the TCA uh, this week, and apparently the French and British official there were working very effectively uh, on a technical, non-controversial, non-political level, trying to sort this out. But of course, this has got very political very quickly. I think there is talk that maybe 13 of those 42 boats could be granted provisional access the commission has been saying that they've provided details that the uh, jersey side has ignored if that gets rectified then maybe we can push that number down further to about 25 boats but you can see that this has really been instrumentalized probably by both sides to gain some kind of political headwind and momentum and there's been talk about the french elections next year there's obviously we've talked a lot about how Boris Johnson and David Frost tend to like to keep these the kettle on the boil uh, on on these issues for domestic reasons but you know this is starting to get ugly and uh, you know you could say that it's linked to the protocol you could say it's linked to um, the, the AUKUS submarine affair but France has obviously taken measures they they are tightening SPS controls on French ports on stuff going in and out that could affect Irish trucks that are using the land bridge. And as Sean said, the UK is threatening uh, reprisals on that.
2: Right. Before I go back to Sean, Tony, just uh, Sean mentioned the statement out in London on the meeting between David Frost and Mara Shevchevich. Anything been briefed about that meeting on your end of things in Brussels? Anything of significance we should know about?
3: Well, the meeting today followed two days of technical talks during the week where there was a bit of progress on on a technical level. And these dealt with things like medicines, uh, what role Stormont might have in overseeing the protocol, uh, SPS, agri-food rules, uh, customs, but again, uh, I mean, the, the background is all of the, the, the kind of drumbeat about Article 16. A lot of speculation in, in the media today and yesterday, Friday and Thursday about... Uh, a committee that uh, it's, it used to be the XO Committee in Whitehall, which uh, is now been called the GBO Committee, which is, is all about managing Brexit, and that there's been discussions on that committee about triggering Article, article 16. So in Brussels, the view is that th- there's almost a sense of inevitability now that ha- having cranked up the volume so high on Article 16 that the UK government really does intend to trigger it. Uh, and you know w- what that will bring is is a whole other uh, podcast. Um, <laughs> but the, the the ECJ issue, uh, which of course Lord Frost has been uh, amplifying since July, is a really tough one. Uh, and just this afternoon, the European Commission, it being Friday, circulated a paper to member states spelling out in very, very stark terms that the European Court of Justice is not up for discussion. It's not up for negotiation. This is an integral part of the protocol which the UK negotiated. uh, And it is a fact that the UK is applying EU law on the EU's frontier and therefore it it simply has to apply, uh, the, the European Court of Justice simply has to have a remit there in overseeing that application of EU law.
2: Right, which takes us neatly back to you, Sean, who you were watching what David Frost had to say during the week on this very issue, the issue of the role of the European Court of Justice.
0: Well, yes, we had uh, his lordship up in front of a couple of committees in the uh, Lords and the Commons this week, including the European Scrutiny Committee, the one that's been presided over for many years by Bill Cash, the veteran Eurosceptic. Uh, We're going to play you, though, in a little extract from it, uh, an exchange between Lord Frost and David Jones who uh, was a junior minister in DEXEU, the department for leaving the uh, European Union uh, during the Theresa May uh, period. Uh, But he's been expressing some fairly tough views on the uh, role of the uh, European Court of Justice. From his point of view, the non-role of the European Court of Justice in um, having any role at all, uh, in the relationship between britain and the european union uh, views that were echoed by several members on that committee uh, lord frost was going quite far in getting the european union out of the relationship perhaps not quite uh, as far as some of the members on the committee would like here's what he had to say david jones please thank you chairman i wonder if i could just press lord frost slightly on one of the answers he he gave you and um, You'll be aware, Lord Frost, that there was a report in The Times last week suggesting that the government might be softening its position on the uh, role of the European Court of Justice by allowing it some sort of vestigial interpretive role. Um, The following day, there was an article in The Telegraph which said that that was effectively a load of nonsense. Was it a load of nonsense?
1: So there's, there's all kinds of speculation uh, uh, around our position and um, there has been for the last two or three weeks. I mean, we've tried to make it clear and the, the position in the command paper is authoritative that we can't have the Court of Justice settling disputes uh, between us um, in this uh, in this uh, protocol in future. And as I said, we're not interested in the court sort of by another name or by, by another route. It must be... I think the principle, probably most important principle, is that uh, it's one of equality. That's what we put into the TCA, two equal sovereign entities with an equal arbitration mechanism that settles disputes fairly between the two parties, and that seems to us the best way forward in this case as well. No
0: role whatever for the European Court of Justice?
1: So no role for uh, the court as the final arbiter of disputes, as the summit of the system that imposes EU law, no role for the direct settlement of disputes between us, Yeah.
0: In that committee as well we had three issues I guess that were being talked of and and give an indication now of how the front is broadening for Lord Frost because there was uh, quite a lot of discussion as you'd expect about the Northern Ireland Protocol but there was also discussions about the fisheries issue and about uh, the Gibraltar issue because there's talks there starting up on uh, a future relationship between uh, the uh, Gibraltar and the European Union and Lord Frost is saying you know there's no read across between what's going on in Gibraltar and the issues of the Northern Ireland Protocol that the two situations are completely different and things are going okay as far as he's concerned on the Gibraltar front. Um, One of the things that did catch my eye was where he said that uh, the management of the border between Spain and Gibraltar would be under the supervision of Frontex, the EU border guard agency rather than directly by the Spanish uh, authorities, which was a kind of an interesting example of Europeanising uh, a problem. And also there seems to be a, a bit of Europeanising going on in the management of the fisheries dispute as well, because uh, the UK is putting pressure on the European Union to, as they would see it, rein in a rogue member state, i.e. France, and put pressure on the European Union to uh, stop the French from carrying out the threats uh, that they have made as well as trying a bit of uh, direct um, action themselves. Uh, That came in the form of a uh, summons to the French ambassador to appear uh, at a meeting with Wendy Morton, the junior minister in the Foreign Office uh, this morning Friday. That was decided at a meeting, uh, a uh, subcommittee of the Cabinet which met yesterday and that was chaired by Lord Frost. Uh, so the actions um, in dealing with the European Union and its member states are um, very much uh, under now the control of Lord Frost, so it would appear, even to the point where uh, he's chairing committees that are summoning ambassadors in uh, to have meetings about what's going on.
2: Right. Tony, speaking of maverick member states, Boris Johnson having a word with the Polish Prime Minister, you were saying that there's a kind of a sensitivity for uh, within Brussels, and indeed we saw it when Sean was talking to Simon Coveney last week about any read-across from issues with the ECJ by member states and uh, issues being had by the UK with the ECJ. But there it was, the ECJ featuring in discussions apparently between Boris Johnson and the Polish Prime Minister as well. How will that go down?
3: Very badly, as, as you can imagine. I mean, Darning Street briefed this morning that Boris Johnson had a phone call with Mateusz Morawiecki, the Polish Prime Minister, and uh, the, the briefing pointedly referenced the fact that Boris Johnson had raised the ECJ issue vis-à-vis the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, I suppose knowing full well that Poland is em- embroiled in a very bitter dispute with the European Commission over the, the role of the ECJ and, and what is the where the primacy of EU law lies uh, in connection with the primacy of national constitutional law. Um, I mean, these are two entirely separate things. But, I mean, to, to diplomats in Brussels, this is Boris Johnson trying to... Wedge himself into an internal EU discussion, which is extremely sensitive and extremely political, and uh, you know ultimately could be very damaging. Uh, and also trying to conflate the Polish issue uh, over the ECJ with the Northern Ireland Protocol and this new demand from London to strip the ECJ out of the protocol. I mean, you know at 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 best, this is a pretty reckless. Uh, strategy by uh, Boris Johnson, uh, which to me seems only designed and calculated to raise the hackles of the European Union uh, at a time when things are already extremely tense over the protocol and over fisheries.
2: Okay, Sean, the protocol was the subject of some research in Northern Ireland over, well, at least it was research earlier this month, but which only came to light during the week. It's something by Queen's University of Belfast when you were mentioning the three F-sounding words at the beginning of this podcast. Finnamore was one of them. Who is David Finnamore and what has he produced along with his colleagues Katie Hayward and Lisa Whitten this week?
0: Well, they all run a a Brexit research up at Queen's University Belfast and they've been doing this uh, survey. Uh, This is the third one that they've done uh, on effectively taking the temperature uh, of what the voters in Northern Ireland think of a range of issues to do uh, with the protocol and the post-Brexit situation in the North. And when it comes to the issue of the uh, European Court of Justice, well, it just doesn't seem to register. It's it's a really l- a low priority issue for the people uh, of Northern Ireland, according to this survey. Um, in terms of the overall economic impact of the uh, protocol, Northern Ireland voters have moved from being predominantly negative in, s- in their sentiment there to being uh, predominantly positive. Um, in terms of the political impact, well, they think it has been uh, predominantly negative. Uh, but a narrow majority, 53%, slightly more than 52%, uh, sees the protocol as the appropriate means for managing the impact of Brexit on Northern Ireland. Uh, The other thing that was quite stark in the findings uh, was the level of trust in various parties, uh, political parties and institutions. The British government was trusted uh, in terms of managing the protocol and the issues around it, by just 4% of the respondents in this survey, which uh, had over 2,000 uh, respondents in it. Um, The European Commission, by contrast, uh, was trusted by 45% uh, of the the respondents there. Even the Irish government got 41% trust in Northern Ireland. The only people who got above 50% in, in their trust score, incidentally, were Northern Ireland business representatives. Uh, In terms of distrust, um, the European Commission, not doing great, it has to be said, 44% distrust them, 45% distrust the Irish government, no real surprise there, Uh, but 87% distrusting the British government, which is quite extraordinary. Uh, In terms of the political parties, the Alliance and the SDLP were getting the most uh, support in terms of trust from the voters, Uh, Sinn Féin and the Ulster Unionist Party, less so. Uh, and when it came to the DUP, three quarters, 75% of the people distrust the DUP uh, and, and what they're doing. So some pretty stark findings in that uh, that survey.
2: Okay. Tony, did you get a look at that? Did anything jump out at you?
3: I, I suppose, yeah. I mean, I think Sean has captured the, the sort of salient uh, aspects there. Um, I get, again, you know, you, you would have to wonder about the timing of this. I mean, I think I think this may survey may have been done during the fuel crisis in in Great Britain and of course there wasn't a similar problem in Northern Ireland and people were attributing that to the the, the Northern Ireland Protocol um, and Northern Ireland having access to the single market. There are obviously some major question marks over, over that particular narrative. You could say that these findings were also recorded before the European Commission published its proposals on making life a lot easier for people under the protocol so i think if, if those uh, if, if those impacts were taken into account then you, you could again see the sw- the the dial switching in favor of the protocol and its general acceptance in northern ireland but you know it, Again, uh, you know, these things are tribal and uh, I think we are going to see very polarized views uh, over time. But I, I suppose if you look at the percentage of people who distrust both the British government and the DUP, then that is quite a, a stark uh, looking figure.
0: Right, and just one more thing that's worth mentioning in terms of this survey, a majority, 53% of the respondents disagree that the UK will be justified to trigger Article 16 now in terms of the dispute. So folks in Northern Ireland don't think it's justified to have the Article 16 measure invoked and they don't see the Court of Justice as a top-line or top-level important issue for them, nor are they particularly worried about other things that Lord Frost was mentioning in his statement today, such as uh, VAT. So they are the views of the, the, the people of Northern Ireland somewhat at variance with those expressed officially by the UK government on their behalf.
2: Well, Truluc, we'll be able to measure it again because they are quarterly surveys carried out by Lucid Talk for the, using a Northern Ireland opinion panel, which is people who are motivated to vote. So there aren't really too many I don't knows in this. So back to that interview you mentioned at the top of the podcast, Tony with Alexandra Hall Hall. You've done a lengthy interview with her. She's been making waves this week. Why?
3: Yeah, so Alexandra Hall Hall joined the Foreign Office in 1986 and then became the Brexit counsellor in Washington. Then she resigned in December of 2019 in protest at what she felt were increasingly disingenuous, even dishonest or inaccurate lines that she was being asked to take as a British diplomat in Washington. Not too much fanfare around that, and she kind of went to ground for a while, but she surfaced uh, this week in a, a long article for the Texas National Security Review magazine. And on foot of that, she made some very interesting remarks about how the British establishment viewed the Northern Ireland issue back in the day in October, September, October 2019. And she gave us a lengthy interview about, the, uh, about that period of time and, and what drove her to resign. So here's the interview she did for Brexit Republic. Uh, it was recorded on Thursday night, and here's what she had to say. Alex, thank you very much for, for joining us. Can you tell us initially how you found yourself as the Brexit counselor in Washington, D.C. Uh, at a fairly critical moment? What, what had been your career path up to then?
4: Thank you. Um, I joined the Foreign Office in 1986, straight from Durham University, where the career advisor had told me I shouldn't even bother trying to apply to the Foreign Office because women and people from uh, universities other than Oxford and Cambridge never got in, but I thought I'd give it a shot anyway. So I was in the Foreign Office from 1986. I had a load of different postings, including to Bangkok, Washington, Bogota, New Delhi, and uh just before the Brexit Council, a job as ambassador in Tbilisi. A pivotal moment vis-a-vis the European portfolio was when I joined the European Secretariat in the Cabinet Office for two years as a negotiator on the Amsterdam Treaty. And I have to say, which might surprise some of your listeners, that at the time I was fairly Eurosceptical. I mean, not in an ideological sense, but I found some of the European Commission's approach to the EU to be a little bit self-serving, and I was fairly sceptical about how some of the EU worked. But I really enjoyed working on the EU, and my attitude really began to change when I was posted to Bogota, and particularly to Tbilisi in Georgia where I could really see what a role model the EU was for other countries and how much other countries like Georgia really wanted to join the European Union. And the multiplier effect of working in close harmony with my EU colleagues to promote democracy and human rights in countries like Colombia and Georgia was really impressive. Once I had left Tbilisi, I took a career break and came back to Washington and I joined a think tank, the Atlantic Council, and just took a break out of the foreign office. And it was in the two years of 2017 and seventeen and eighteen when the Brexit debate was really hotting up and I was sitting in the Atlantic Council, a really influential and well-informed think tank in Washington, and observing that the narrative on Brexit in America was really incoherent. There was no really systematic effort to engage and explain to US audiences what Brexit was. And all the coverage was just similar to some of the coverage in the UK. It was very lurid and colourful and personality-driven. And there wasn't really a coherent narrative coming from the UK. So how I ended up as Brexit counsellor is actually, I visited the Foreign Office and emailed them, and I said, we're not actually getting out a coherent message in the States. We really need to have a more concerted, systematic effort to explain to American audiences what's actually going on with Brexit. And that so actually- this
3: was the time of yeah. Theresa May, was it? Yeah, at, at, at that point. Yeah, so that she had just taken as well. over as Prime Minister after the referendum yeah she, she was then finding her her position on brexit
4: yeah so this was through 2018 i would go to all these think tank events and loads of americans would come up to me and say what the hell's going on on brexit we don't understand it why do we never hear anybody over here talking about it So I had recommended to London that we needed to be more proactive and engaged in the US. And as it happened, that chimed with a sentiment in the embassy as well, that they really needed more support to get their message out. And so they created this job, Brexit Counselor. They didn't create it for me, but I applied for it and got it. And I actually posted on my Facebook page to all my friends, don't laugh because I know you think I'm a You know, I'm not a fan of Brexit, but actually, I'm really committed to trying to explain what Brexit is and dispel some of the myths. And I care about my country and I want us to come across well. So I was very committed when I took up the job.
3: So at the time as well, I suppose there was kind of a fixation from Ireland and the rest of the EU on what Theresa May, what way she might turn on Brexit, certainly before her Conservative Party conference speech in in 2016. But then she progressively seemed to close the door shut on membership of the customs union and single market. She was obviously veering towards a a, a kind of a harder Brexit. In that position that you had, I mean, did you feel that you you were being delivered a coherent message from London that you could then deliver to to your American interlocutors?
4: I think the challenge we had is that and this obviously wasn't just with Theresa May, it was even more the case under Boris Johnson. There was just a reluctance to accept some of the consequences of the choices that were being made. And as a civil servant, my colleagues and I in the Embassy in Washington, it wasn't up to us to say what those choices should be. But what we needed was a narrative that explained in a persuasive way what the implications of all those choices were. If we were not going to stay in the customs union and the single market, then we needed to be able to say honestly what the implications of that decision were. For example, for American businesses, a lot of whom have investments in the UK or who have based their European operations in the UK in order to trade on to Europe. And that I think was the most frustrating thing is there was a reluctance to really own the consequences and explain them. And I think we would have had a lot of credibility. I mean, there is a coherent narrative to be made that if you're going to leave the EU, that actually means making a clean break. And our credibility would have been fine if we'd owned that decision and explained what it meant and said that will mean some disruption, that will mean some friction. But these are the reasons why we've gone this way. There's you know, here are the factors that have led us there. Whereas we were being edged into these decisions without ever really owning up to what that actually meant.
3: And the the people who were asking you these questions in Washington, and I assume elsewhere in America, that they were chief executives, uh, other diplomats,
4: there were different audiences in the think tank sector interestingly enough there was far more interest in the strategic implications of brexit what did it mean for the cohesion of the european union where are other eu countries going to follow suit so there was a lot of worry about that initially there were worries that as tensions between the uk and the eu grew that that would contaminate cooperation in nato or that the US might have to be brought in to kind of arbitrate and wouldn't be able to satisfy either side. So there was a lot more concern about the strategic implications of Brexit, especially at a time when people were very worried about Russian actions and this feeling that the transatlantic alliance really needed to be solid. So that was one constituency and audience. Then there was the business sector, banks, services, companies, manufacturers who had operations, some of which relied upon just-in-time supply chains between the UK and the EU, like British businesses. There were scientists who wanted to collaborate with British scientists and appreciated the fact that the British scientific community could cooperate under horizon with European scientists. There were um, law enforcement interests, if the UK made a clean break with the EU, that would mean we could no longer cooperate quite so easily on justice and home affairs issues. And so for the federal law agencies here in Washington, what did that mean for them, because the UK had been a gateway into European security cooperation. And in Congress, really the most active and engaged constituency was the Irish America caucus. And for Congress, by and large, the biggest interest was the implications on Ireland.
3: Of course. And and so you were having to to, to kind of be be, you know, batting for the British position under Theresa May when she was going through that really torrid time from, I guess. December 2017, the joint report, uh, right the way through 2018 until she concluded the the withdrawal agreement with the EU, but then, of course, ran into horrendous opposition and she had resignations (laughs) and so on. Were the people in the Irish-American caucus tuned in to what exactly was going on, or were they just simply alarmed at at, at what was happening?
4: Well, I didn't join the embassy until um, the second half of 2018, so some of the run-up we weren't really engaged in. The Irish issue was a slow moving one. Um, It really only came to the fore in 2019. So people were aware of it as a factor, but it was really in 2019 that it, because the implications of the protocol that Theresa May had negotiated were front and center of all the controversy in the first half of 2019. And that's when that interest became huge. Over December and January, December 2018, when Theresa May first brought back her deal, and then it was supposed to be voted on in the House of Commons, and at the last minute she pulled it because she didn't think she had the votes, and then from January onwards we had all these votes, a lot of the coverage in the US press was all just about the sort of chaos and shambles and defeated votes and personalities rather than the substance of what the, actually the deal entailed.
3: And what was it like for you trying to maintain a kind of a steady picture to, to the American, you know, a, a steady front facing picture to the, the people you were talking to when all that was going on?
4: Well, the line I took and actually I think it was a good line to take because it was an honest line was to say that Brexit is genuinely difficult and that there are strong views held on both sides of the political spectrum and that it's not just differences of opinion between the government and the opposition, but actually each of the main political parties is divided on this issue. So it was entirely to be expected that it was going to be really difficult. That doesn't mean Brexit was wrong or that we don't know what we're doing. It's just really genuinely hard to deliver because it's such a difficult issue. And because I think that was true, it had credibility. And so I used to just explain to people, that's why it's difficult. So it's not that anything's going wrong in the UK, it's just genuinely difficult. And then I would get into the weeds of what this vote means and what that amendment means, and eventually they'd get bored.
3: (laughs) At at what point did things start to get uncomfortable for you uh, as uh, a civil servant in terms of the message that you were being asked to convey and some of the lines that you were being asked to to put out there?
4: So in the first half of my job, while Theresa May was prime minister, it was very difficult because the lines, as I said, they somewhat skated over some of the implications or they just preferred not to go down that road. But... um, they were kind of professional lines. Um, And Theresa May in the House of Commons was using the same lines that we were using. And she always behaved in a very respectable way in European fora, and was always very respectful towards all points of view in the House of Commons. So it all felt like everything that was going on, it may look chaotic and messy, and it was certainly very frustrating and tiring to follow all of that. But it felt like we were behaving as a democracy, wrestling with a very difficult constitutional and political challenge. And it was genuinely difficult. As I said in my article for the Texas National Security Review, it really did change for me when Boris Johnson became prime minister, because it then became very political. The language and the tone and debates of the House of Commons became... Much more antagonistic, and sort of MPs were being accused of being traitors or of betraying the will of the people. And there was that real sense of frustration. And then also, the lines to take that were circulated to civil servants just became overtly more political with very loaded language. So, the Benn Act was described as the Surrender Act. Uh, As a civil servant, we're really not supposed to use that kind of loaded political language. So it it really did shift when Boris Johnson became prime minister, even though the lines in some ways were far less ambiguous. I mean, we really were going to leave the EU and the government was very committed to making a clean break. That was very clear. Um, And did
3: you do you think that this was so this is almost like an overnight change in tone? And do you think it came from from him himself from, from the top?
4: I don't know. That's not for me to say. I mean, the lines were distributed through the normal channels, but I'm sure number 10 took a very close hold on them.
3: And what was the response in Washington when you were delivering these lines from the people that you had obviously built relationships and and rapport with over your time there?
4: I found it easier to talk to audiences who weren't steeped in the detail of Brexit. I could maintain a a sort of higher narrative and a bigger picture and say this is a long term strategic shift. It's going to be bumpy. And I found it not difficult to give a positive, confident narrative to audiences who were sort of more general. It was much harder to talk to the think tank colleagues because they really understood this issue. Some of them were real experts themselves. And it was very hard to talk to the business community. And in fact, it was just really uncomfortable because in September and October, as it looked like there was a real chance we could leave without a deal, certainly that's what the prime minister was talking up, but pressures were getting really acute and we were getting closer and closer to the deadlines. The businesses were saying well what's going to happen are you going to leave without a deal or aren't you and we couldn't say the ben act technically made it illegal but the government was still saying they were prepared to do it anyway and it was just leaving businesses in complete and utter limbo and we had phone calls from people my daughter's going to america can she come back i mean will there be planes i mean we were getting inquiries what about my pet i mean <laughs> um, We were getting inquiries from every direction and we just didn't have the answers because we didn't know either so that was really uncomfortable when i was talking to us businesses whatever we chose to do would impact people who had real jobs real investments real livelihoods and so that was what made it hard that was when it started to get really hard for me. And
3: you you mentioned in your article as well that there seemed to be a very cavalier attitude about the implications of a no-deal exit on Northern Ireland and the peace process. Can, Can you talk about what concerns you were picking up, first of all, from home in Whitehall and how did you feel personally about that?
4: So the Northern Ireland one was really acute because the difficulty we had was the reluctance of ministers just to acknowledge that this was an issue at all. The lines we would be given would just say bland things like, we're committed to the Good Friday Agreement, and of course we won't allow a hard border on Ireland. And that only got you so far because the question would come back and say, well, how are you going to avoid that? And if you go for this form of Brexit, There has to be a border somewhere because you're leaving the single market, so where will the checks be done? But because the prevailing ethos in the government was that there would be alternative arrangements on the border and that technical fixes could be found and that this wasn't an issue. I mean, the British government's posture was just to deny this was an issue. It'll all get itself sorted out. So they didn't give us arguments because they just denied it was a problem at all. And I think it was that stonewalling and that reluctance to engage on the substance that was really, really frustrating. And I found briefing members of the Irish American Caucus and my colleagues in the embassy uh, who worked very closely on this did a fantastic job of trying to reassure but just asserting that something won't be so without any evidence to back it up is not very credible. And the speaker, Nancy Pelosi, went to the UK sometime in that autumn and met members of the European Research Group and came back really angry because she experienced it face to face. She was the most senior Democrat in Washington and she was just stonewalled. You know, well, this isn't an issue. It's just the EU and the Irish using this as a lever to put pressure on the British. And that was just really, that was very difficult.
3: I mean, you mentioned uh, one very eye catching moment in that period in your article, which has obviously got a lot of attention. And I know you don't want to name the minister in question, which is understandable, but can you just talk us through the kind of context in which those remarks were delivered? I mean, this was essentially a minister saying that. If there was a no-deal Brexit, the only people who were worried about the, the implications of that were some farmers with uh, turnips in the back of a truck. I mean, it seems a, an extraordinarily kind of cavalier and insensitive thing to say, give, given the history of a certain strain of uh, stereotyping. But you know, what, was, what was the context in which those remarks were made?
4: Those were unbelievably offensive remarks. I was completely gobsmacked when I heard that being said the reason I don't want to say who the minister is is precisely because I think this was just such an outrageous thing to say that it's actually really explosive and I do not want to put that minister on the spot the minister in question was speaking at a think tank and it was a right-leaning think tank with many members very sympathetic to Brexit. So it was a generally sympathetic audience, but there were representatives of a few other think tanks there who had a more critical approach. When the minister made those remarks, it was talking about trade. And One of the think tank colleagues said, but what about the issue affecting the border? And the minister just made this very dismissive. It's just really not an issue. And actually, the minister went on to say, and I don't believe the Irish-American... Oh, another guest in the audience then said, oh, and minister, you really shouldn't believe that this Irish-American issue is really that serious either. It's really not an issue in Congress. And that was really frustrating because it was an issue in Congress. And in fact, at the end of the year, there was a resolution passed by the House of Congress unanimously saying that it was an issue including signatories of Democrat and Republicans and that was another problem we had in the embassy is that when ministers did come through they tended only to hear what they wanted to hear and they tended to engage with those parts of the US system that were sympathetic to Brexit and they would not engage with other think tanks or constituencies that were more skeptical so they never really heard it straight from the horse's mouth from people who said but are you really gonna be able to handle it this way? And why are you doing it that way? They only, what they heard reinforced what they wanted to believe. And after the event had happened, I was walking back to the Metro with a few of the participants. Most of the participants at this right-wing think tank didn't blink an eye at what the minister said, but the two who I walked home with agreed it was just extraordinary
3: and this no. is this still, and I
4: didn't is say it still to anybody outside precisely because it was just so uncomfortable and i asked them not to as well i said please don't broadcast that because
3: that would be damaging yeah and is this still a serving minister uh, yes okay well look, i mean the, 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 that was obviously around the the time of the, of Boris Johnson's deal eventually which which uh, happened at the end of October, and we now have the protocol that, that uh, he, he signed. On the basis of what you learned that night at that Think Tank event, I mean, given that it was a sympathetic audience and the minister obviously felt that they were in the kind of company they liked, do you think that they were kind of revealing what they really truly felt about the Irish question?
4: I think they were revealing. They hadn't really thought about it at all.
3: Right. Um, but can you tell me, Alex, just finally now, as we come into the end of the, of the conversation, what was it that led you to, to resign? Was it just accumulation of discomfort and unease and anxiety about the way things were going? Or was there a particular event which made you realise you, you could no longer be part of that, of that system?
4: It was an accumulation. I heard in September when Parliament was prorogued. That was a defining moment because it was quite clear, as indeed the courts later ruled, that this was an attempt to shut down debate in Parliament. And that's the role of Parliament, to hold government to account. So that was a very shocking moment. But then we were heading towards a potential no deal at the end of October, and we were standing up a planning cell, an emergency planning cell in the embassy to manage that. And I didn't want to bail out on my colleagues right at that moment. And so I channeled my concerns by thinking, well, maybe I'll just use the proper channels available to me, which is to write a formal complain internally and say I'm very worried about what's going on and I think we're being asked to use lines to take that are not honest and and that are deliberately misleading and that's a violation of the civil service code and so I used that as a route to see whether that would have any traction and I really appreciated my colleagues in the foreign office they took it very seriously I wasn't the first person to have those concerns but I may have been the only identifies the only person, but one of only a few people who actually formally registered a concern. And so that did lead to a review within amongst officials, and it did result in a, in a change to the way that the lines were drawn up, so that a civil servant had to sign them off. But even then, the lines were still a little bit disingenuous, and they were completely countermanded by what the prime minister and his government were saying. So the lines would then say things that were slightly more accurate, but the Prime Minister would continue to say something completely different. So as we built up to the deadline of 31st October, I told the Foreign Office that if the Prime Minister did not adhere to the Benn Act, I would immediately resign. But he did. And then we had a deal was concluded with the EU, and then a general election was called. And in a way, that lanced the boil because That provided a way for the British public to have a vote. Although I think by then Brexit fatigue was so huge that I think the substance of what had been negotiated wasn't really the issue, it was just get Brexit done. And I just realised I had had enough. (laughs) Um, It was an accumulation and I didn't think anything was going to get better after the election. And so that was the point at which I thought, I've done my best, I've done my bit, but I can't go on with this any longer.
3: And what was the response from Boris Johnson, if, if any, personally to you? Did you receive any note from him thanking you or asking you why you resigned? <laughs> or, or, or at least what was the official response from, from government? Awful,
4: actually. I was, uh, if I have one true sadness over this, it is the fact that at the very last minute, the Foreign Office begged me not to release my resignation letter, which I had intended to do because I thought there's no point resigning on principle if you can't actually say what those principles were. And I was giving up a career that I had loved and I knew that when I resigned, I would get a lot of flack and be accused of being a, you know, a remainer and not being impartial and all of that. So I knew I was gonna get quite a lot of criticism. And so I thought, well, at least I can say why I've resigned but the foreign office was really worried that on the eve of an election it would look very political and i and i appreciated that yeah that was a fair point so at the very last minute i did agree not to circulate it but i sent it to my colleagues in the office and some and i even sent them a note saying please don't circulate this wider but somebody did leak it and what really upsets me is that right up to the point of my departure people at the Foreign Office were like, oh, poor you, Alex, I know it's very difficult and I can imagine the stress. The minute that letter leaked, not a single official in London contacted me again. Not to say I was cut off like persona non grata. Um, I got a letter from personnel department that just said, now that you've said you wish to resign, here are all the technical details you need to do. There wasn't a thank you for your service, we appreciate, You know, I mean, it was just utter dropping and that I just find extraordinary because I was not the only person who had these concerns. Up until the moment of my departure, I did my job as well. I went out into American audiences every day and promoted Brexit and kept my reservations to myself. And so I feel like they treated me pretty shabbily. But privately, a lot of colleagues reached out. But some of those who I thought might have done didn't. And I think either it was cowardice or they didn't want to use the official Foreign Office mail. I don't know. You know, not everybody has to agree with what I did. Obviously, it was a very difficult time back in London. But I was a bit shocked at how the senior leadership in the Foreign Office just cut me off. I, I think it says more about them, to be honest.
3: Well, I was going to ask you, in the light of what has happened since, I mean, you mentioned there that Boris Johnson did adhere to the Benn Act, and he did get an agreement in 2019, and he did win a landslide election on the back of that agreement. And yet now, not so long after it has come into force, Boris Johnson and Lord Frost, who who had come from the Foreign Office, essentially want to tear up that agreement and replace it with something else? I mean, does that surprise you? Do you see that as part of the same radical change in in, in policy and approach by the British government?
4: I think it's the same approach of duplicity they've had all along, which is, What kind of deal can we achieve to get us through this month and that month and to an election and that we can sell and that avoids having to face up to the hard consequences? And who else can we blame for all the challenges? It's always been the problem with Brexit. Brexit itself is not illegal, it's not immoral, it's not unethical. I have members of my family who voted for Brexit though I didn't personally agree with it and I don't agree with their reasons, I respect people's opinion who thought it would be better for the UK to be out of the EU. It was the utter failure to have an honest discussion with the British public about what Brexit actually means. And this is part and parcel of the same approach. Now, two years on, it's not that the deal itself was flawed, it's that the way the EU is implementing it is wrong or they're being too legalistic. I mean, that's what the EU is. It's a legal entity. Or British businesses just need to get with the programme. Everybody is at fault, except for the people who advocated for Brexit and never acknowledged that it involved consequences. And the British people might have voted for Brexit anyway acknowledging the consequences but they were never spelled out honestly and that's that's what i can't forgive and that was why it was a different situation for me as a diplomat we weren't talking about a policy decision over ethiopia or ghana or a policy approach on russia and this was me having to defend and explain what was going on in my own country it's right. different and this is our government lying to our own people that's different
3: right okay well look uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you about uh, those difficult months back in 2018 2019 alexandra hall hall thank you very much you're the former brexit councillor at the british embassy in washington dc it's been a pleasure talking to you thanks for joining us on brexit republic thanks very much bye picking up on the interview with alexandra hall hall the senior British minister who said that um, only Irish farmers with turnips in the back of their truck were worried about a no-deal Brexit. I think there's going to be a bit of a detective hunt to see who that minister was. I mean, she said that the minister spoke at a a right-leaning think tank in Washington, and that would have been sometime between um, August and October 2019. So I'm sure it may not be too difficult to try and figure out who made those comments because uh she did say that that minister is still serving in boris johnson's uh government so there'll, there'll be some intriguing uh detective trails there that may turn up who this person was okay all right well
2: pop the deerstalker hat and the monocle on we'll talk we'll talk to you next week maybe you'll have some developments
3: on that my gate is closing uh, better run yeah all right sorry about that i sorry
0: about that. That's all right. I just you.
2: need to see
3: your passport
0: or ID as
2: well. Yeah. Thank you. Mm. Yeah, we better let you go because you're on your way to the airplane. I don't think you have time to tell us what's coming up next week.
3: Just quickly. Uh, yeah. So uh, there, there'll be more talks again next week on the protocol, more technical talks. Sean, what about you coming up in the coming week?
0: coming up in the coming week well it's, it's all cop 26 uh, as far as british politics is concerned but of course there are going to be these ongoing talks in terms of brexit as well uh, as tony said that meeting to take place next friday between mr frost and mr Shevchevich in brussels uh, over a lunch hopefully it'll be another convivial lunch nobody's expecting anybody to pull the plug or uh, pull an article 16 action um, this side of the cop 26 finishing but of course we do have that fisheries dispute festering away so uh, early in the week is supposed to be the deadlines for getting that one resolved who knows what's going to happen uh, in terms of the fish issue
2: okay well that's it from me Colm o'mongown rte's deputy
0: foreign editor here in dublin from me sean Whelan, rte's correspondent in london
3: and from me tony connolly rte's europe editor in copenhagen thanks for listening